Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. All right, well, take your copy of God's Word in Mark chapter 16. I know we've had a lot of different things going on today, but it's just so great to be in the house of God uh, with the people of God, with the air condition of God. Amen? Uh, we are so grateful for that. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Let's stand this morning as we get our Baptist aerobics in. Mark chapter one, 16, verse number 1. The Holy Spirit says through John Mark. Now, when the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And the angel said to them, or the, the, the young man said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for fear and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. You may be seated. Now, I know for some of you, you're like, this is an Easter passage and this isn't Easter. This is like June. Well, it's okay. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Amen. Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty, salvation is free, it's all good, we're going to celebrate, amen? So here's my question for you today. Have you ever heard of a game changer? Now, I'm not talking about the heat and the nuggets, all right? Uh, although, because Jesus is alive, there is hope for the, for the heat, uh, amen? Uh, Jesus is in the tomb for three days, the heater down three to one, you never know. But, but what is a game changer? A game changer is an event, an idea, or procedure uh, that, that affects a significant shift in the current manner of doing things or thinking about something. And so a, a game changer uh, kind of disrupts the existing norms or challenges traditional approaches, and it introduces new paradigms. And so let's kind of think of some game changers in the past 25 years. Now, some of these are good. Some of these are not so good. And so the first kind of big game changer, September the 11th, 2001. 
Uh, and that changed forever. It was a game changer in a bad way. It really changed how we view terrorism, and it changed forever how we travel. And so if you love the TSA, uh, I mean, we should love them because they serve and protect us in air uh, travel, and it's a big deal. And, you know, back in the old days, middle schoolers in the room, even high schoolers, you could actually go up to the gate and pick someone up from the airport. Now you can't do that. Uh, another game changer is January, the, uh, January 2007. There's this little invention called the iPhone. We've talked about this quite a bit. It changed everything. What, a computer that used to be as big as this room can now fit in your back pocket. And it changed how we live our daily lives, how we uh, access information, how we consume entertainment, and how we actually transact e-commerce. There are so many things that we buy and do with our phones. December, the, December 2019, the, the, in Wuhan, China, uh, the first case of COVID-19, that literally changed the world. It's a game changer. And another one that I think maybe you're, right now we don't think about, but I'm telling you, in a few years from now, if Jesus doesn't return, this is a game changer. In November of 2022, something called ChatGPT was launched into the world, and now it's been writing high school and college papers ever since. Um, but artificial intelligence, and it literally has changed the world, and I think it's that new technology that is a game changer. But all of these game changers I've talked about in the past 25 years, they pale in comparison to the ultimate game changer in all of history, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because everything that we know in this life and everything that we hope in the life to come all hinges on whether or not Jesus is alive. And so that's what we call, we believe that he's alive, and that's what we call the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is alive. But a lot of people in our world, and maybe even in the church, have heard the word gospel. Uh, you've said the word gospel, uh, but you don't really know how to define it. Well, the word gospel wasn't a new word that was invented by the writers of the Bible. It was a word that was used in that day, and it just simply meant good news. It was a Greek word, euangelion, just meant good news. But it wasn't just good news like, hey, it's pizza on Friday or taco Tuesday. Uh, but it's good news that has a life-changing, uh, when you hear it, when, when you, it's, it's news of such magnitude that it will change how you live your life. And so what, what happened in the ancient days, let's say a war was won. Well, they didn't have Twitter. They didn't have social media. Uh, they didn't have uh, CNN and Fox News. They didn't have any of those things. And so how news got out was these people called evangelists would go from village to village, town to town, telling everyone the good news, telling everyone the gospel. Here's what's happened. And so the ultimate game changer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let me give you somewhat of a succinct definition of what that is. And here's what it is. That Jesus was crucified for our sins, was buried, and God raised him from the dead so that whoever turns from their way and trusts in him will be made right with God forever. And so that's the good news. And over these past 36 sermons, we've traveled through the book of Mark, examining the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if the book of Mark ended in chapter 15, well, that would be pretty sad. Because what you have in chapter 15 is you have Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. And everyone would have thought he was finished. Because in Jesus' day, there were people who claimed to be Messiah. There were tons of messianic movements. There were people who would rise up, they would get a following, they would get a bunch of people who would believe that there's somebody special and that what would happen is as soon as that leader died, the movement would die with them. 
But the difference between all the messianic movements in the first century Israel and this one that we're talking about today is that when the leader died in this movement, things just got started because he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And that's what Mark has promised from the very beginning. If you read Mark chapter one, verse one, he made a promise. He says in the the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, Mark made a promise that this story has a happy ending. And so the story, the Jesus story that we have been walking through Sunday after Sunday ends and finds its climax in chapter 16, where we see that death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him, that Jesus rose triumphantly over sin, death, hell and the grave. And that changes everything. And so how does the how does the resurrection of Jesus really change my life? How can it change your life? Well, here's how I want to tell you three ways. And here's what I want you to get at. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, number one, is confirmation of Christianity. It's an, expe- it's, it's an expectation for the future, and it's an invitation to a greater mission. That's how it changes. The resurrection of Jesus is confirmation of Christianity, an expectation for the future, and an invitation to a greater mission. So let's unpack that. Number one, the resurrection is confirmation of Christianity. So verse number one, the Bible says that when the Sabbath had passed, so the Sabbath ended at sunset on Saturday. Jesus died on Friday. So some 48 to 72 hours have now taken place. And in those hours, the disciples thought that their world was over. All their hopes, all their dreams were dashed. As Jesus said, tetelestai, it is finished and breathed his last. In that moment, they thought that Jesus, the Messiah, the one that they hoped was going to rule and reign now was dead and gone forever. And so Mark tells us that there were three women who show up to the tomb after the Sabbath when it was appropriate. Mary Magdalene, who was a formerly demon-possessed woman. Mary, uh, the mother of James, but the mother of Jesus as well. Uh, And then you have this woman named Salome, who was the wife of Zebedee and the mother of James and John. And these women uh, saw, the matter of fact, Mark tells us three times their names specifically, and they saw Jesus die. They saw him physically die. They saw where Jesus was buried. And then they're the ones that show up at the tomb. And so they are expecting to find a dead body that needed to be preserved. And so the reason why Mark puts their names in specifically is because this is not a book of fairy tales. Uh, This is not a legend. This is a historical document. And so Mark here, who I believe his source was Peter. So this is The the gospel of Mark could be the gospel according to Peter, who was an eyewitness of these events through the Holy Spirit and Peter's help. John Mark writes these things that are. And what Mark is doing here when he mentions names is he's giving a historical account with footnotes. Here's a citation. Here are people who were literally there and literally saw what happened. And so these women, as they're making their way to the tomb, the number one thought on their mind was, how are we going to roll that stone away? Because there was a big, huge boulder that was placed at the mouth of the tomb because the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees were a little nervous about what could take place because they heard Jesus say over and over and over again, I'm going to rise from the dead in three days. And so the Bible says that as they approach the tomb, they look up and there they see that there was no stone. Now, it was the third day. None of the disciples showed up. What were they? Probably in hiding. They were fearful for what was going to take place. These women show up and they show up the earliest they could because of the the Sabbath. And the, the interesting thing is that no one expected a resurrection. It wasn't like, you know what? 
it's the third day. We should at least go check it out, you know? Like you would think they would have at least done that, but no, they didn't even check it out. They show up to the tomb, and nothing that they thought would be there was there. They thought there'd be a stone. There was no stone. They thought there'd be soldiers. No soldiers. They thought there'd be a body. There's no body. But an angel sitting in a white robe. And the angel, what does he say to them? He says, don't be alarmed. Well, why would he say that? Because they were alarmed. Because they walk in and nothing they expected was there. They walk into this tomb. They're expecting a dead body, find nobody, and they were messed up. They're pretty messed up. Isn't it interesting that at the beginning of the gospel in Luke chapter 2, the shepherds, they see angels. They freak out. What do the angels say? Fear not. Here, Mary, they see an angel. What does the angel say? Don't be alarmed. Why? Because they were alarmed. And so the angel says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. So like, the angel is very specific here. Like you would think that the angel kind of knew what, who they were looking and for. And, but no, the angel is very specific. Specifically, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, right? Not, 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 Bob from, not Bob from Jericho, right? You're looking, well, Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who was just crucified, he's not here. He's risen. Now, why this is important and interesting is think about this. The first people to know the news that Jesus wasn't in the tomb were women. Now, we hear that and think, well, that makes sense. That's great. But in the first century... Jewish-Israeli world, the Palestinian world, a woman's testimony was not permissible or admissible as evidence in the court of law. As a matter of fact, according to historians in first century, a woman's testimony would be unstable and unreliable. It would, a woman's testimony would be less reliable than a four-year-old boy's in the court of law. As a matter of fact, Jewish men in the first century, most of them would wake up in the morning, raise their hands to the sky and say, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave or a woman. And so you say, well, why are you saying this? Here's why. Because if you are writing a legend, if you're writing a made up story to try to get people to follow you and to believe in you, you wouldn't make your star eyewitnesses women. Because this wouldn't get the movement off the ground in first century. But here you have three women, three women who were here at the tomb and they are the ones who are telling everyone there is no body in the tomb. The only reason that they would be the witnesses in Mark's account is that they really were the witnesses that there was no body in the tomb. Now, some people, they read the Bible or you hear it and like if you, you're listening to some the noise in our world and they say, well, Christianity and the Bible is a patriarchal system. It's about oppression. It's about oppressing women. It's about oppressing people. It's the subjugation, submission, depression mindset. And so women are pushed down, but they really haven't read the Bible. Because all other religions and all other philosophies, really, any thought of a woman having any elevated position is coming from the gospel. It's coming from the Bible. Because the Bible says that men and women, only two genders, just in case you're wondering, are made in the image of God. They are equal in essence, value, dignity, and worth. Different in function. We're complementarian. But equal in the eyes of God. And there has been no other book, there has been no other religion than Christianity that has elevated women in the world than that, period. As a matter of fact, Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book on uh, the women in Jesus's life, she said this, she says, you know, Mary of Nazareth was the first to hear about Jesus 
before he was ever born from her womb. She says, then Mary of Magdalene was the first to see him after he was reborn from the tomb. Isn't that interesting? And so again, it just goes that these were real people in real time that were real eyewitnesses of a real resurrected Jesus. And so why is this important? Because Jesus' resurrection from the dead is confirmation of everything that was ever said about Jesus and everything that Jesus ever said. You understand that Jesus staked his entire life and reputation. He staked everything on a prediction that he made. He made a prophecy. He made a promise. As a matter of fact, as you scurry the Gospels, 21 times in the Gospels, Jesus makes this prediction. I'm going to be delivered to the Gentiles. I'm going to die, but three days later rise from the dead. He staked everything on that. Do you know that in the Old Testament, especially in first century Israel, that a prophet could have 99 correct prophecies and one false prophecies and he would be a false prophet? Jesus put everything on the line for this prediction, and that is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophecy ever predicted by anyone in the history of humanity or the world or the universe. And so, it's confirmation. Because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then according to C.S. Lewis, he is a liar or he is a lunatic. Because if Jesus is still dead, he was, he, he was just a liar. He was, he, was, he was trying to deceive people, to to get power or money or prestige, or he was a lunatic, totally deluded and, and cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But if he is alive, then he's the Lord of all. See, this, the angel looks at these women. He says, this is, this is what he said was going to happen. You're going to see him just as he told you. Jesus has kept his promises and Jesus isn't here. He's alive and he is who he says he is. And because of that, hope is alive. And Jesus said this in Luke 24, verse 44. He says, these are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So everything ever said about him, everything that he ever said is found in its fulfillment. It's yes and amen are found in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, some of you, you're still skeptical and you're thinking, well, you know what? How do we know this isn't a, this isn't a fraud? How do we know that this isn't something made up? Well, let me give you some simple responses to that. Number one, how why I believe that this is legit is number one, the tomb is empty. There is no body. There is nobody there uh, that, uh, that has ever said uh, that this is the body of Jesus. Now, if the disciples stole it or these women showed up to the wrong tomb, surely someone from the History Channel or Discovery Channel would have found a body by now. Surely somebody would. Somebody would have found something, but they haven't found anything. But you say, well, you know what? Maybe they burned his body. Maybe they poured him in acid or maybe just something happened. Well, then let's get to the second reason. Well, the second reason is there were many eyewitnesses that Jesus was alive. So he had died. Many people saw him die. Then many people saw him come from the dead. Now, some believe, like in Islam, they say, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He kind of, kind of passed out. And then when they put him in the tomb, it was cold. He woke up and said, oh, but there's a lot more explaining you got to do with that. <laughs> but here's where I'm getting at here is that you have Mark and other gospel writers saying there were real people that saw Jesus really alive after they knew he was really dead. One, Mark says, are these three women. The other gospels say that there are the 11 disciples. Then you have Paul who says that there were 
500 people that Jesus appeared to. Now, if all of these people were tripped out on magic mushrooms, they could not all hallucinate a living Savior. They just couldn't. But here's the third thing, which I think is a great strong apologetic, is the long-term impact that Jesus made on the life of those who have followed him. That many of the people who said Jesus is alive died because they believed he was alive. You think about the history of early Christianity. Many died for so, in so many sad, horrible, torturous ways. And they died with joy and with, with, a, with a sense of peace because they knew what they were believing in was true. You know, few people will actually die for the truth. And almost nobody will die for something that they know is a lie. But here you have men and women who have staked their lives, their reputations, their futures, their families on the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is confirmation that Christianity is true. And so according to Tim Keller, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, nothing he said or was said about him matters. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then everything he said and everything said about him ultimately matters. So here we have the resurrection is confirmation of Christianity. Number two, the resurrection is expectation for the future. Verse six, the angel says, don't be alarmed. Why did he say that? Because they were alarmed. The word alarmed here is a word found in, in Mark's gospel in chapter 14, verse 33. It's the same word that the English translators will actually translate agony. Describes how Jesus was. And so here their alarm is they were in agony. Why were they in agony? Well, one is that all their paradigms have been blown. Uh, everything that they expected to have happen did not happen. And they thought that everything was over. So they came to the tomb, saw nothing. Nobody was there, saw no stone, saw no guards. And now they're like, well, this is over. And so they didn't really know how to comprehend all this. They believed that when Jesus died, it destroyed everything. And so when they show up, and they find an angel there and know Jesus there, it changed everything because what they thought was actually ruining their lives was actually Jesus' way of saving and changing their lives. That's why the angel looks at them and says, hey, don't, don't be afraid. He's not here. He told you he wasn't going to be here. You should have trusted him. But here's what you need to do. You need to go tell his disciples and notice here, go tell Peter. Go tell Peter we're going to meet in Galilee. Now, side note here, why is it that this angel has a specific message for Peter? Well, some of you might say, well, he's kind of the leader of the group. Some think, well, you know, he was kind of full of himself, he's a loud mouth, you know. But here's what I think it is. I could be wrong, but I'm probably not. The last interaction that Peter had with Jesus wasn't a good one. The last interaction that Peter had with Jesus is Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus said, you're gonna, Jesus said Peter was going to do it. Peter said, listen, not only will I not do it, but I'll die for you before I would do it. Jesus gets arrested. Now, Peter is the only one who actually shows up for the trials. But then Peter denies Christ three times, even putting a curse upon himself. And that was the lowest moment in Peter's life. And I think here what God is doing through this angel is giving a specific word to Peter that says this, I'm not done with you, Peter. And isn't it awesome that God does not reduce us down to our worst moments? Isn't it God doesn't just do what a lot of us do with people? We just put them down the lowest common denominator of their selves and we just 
pushed him off as if they don't matter. Here, God, through this angel, says to Peter, hey, I'm alive. I'm not done with you. There's work to do. Meet me in Galilee. Let's get it going. Isn't that awesome? That God has way more grace and mercy than we have sin in us, that God has a greater plan and that God does not reduce us down to our worst common denominator, but he has something that he can do and can redeem us and do things in and through our lives that we could not ever imagine. See, Jesus's death was not the end of the movement because his resurrection was the dawning of a new day. That's what it was all about. As a matter of fact, if you read all 39 books of the Old Testament, there is an expectation that there would be a king who would come in and usher a new kingdom. So you have men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Micah and Malachi and Zechariah and Zephaniah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all those guys. They are looking and longing for a descendant of David who would come in and bring in a new day and usher in a new kingdom. And this new kingdom would be a kingdom of wholeness and well-being, a a place of healing and joy and newness, a place of rest and, and reconciliation and justice and right relationships. It's all about a kingdom. And that's why when Jesus enters the scene, if you remember, as we've gone through these 36 weeks, as Jesus enters on the scene, the first message is about what? It's about the kingdom. He says, repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was all about this kingdom. That's why in chapter four, when he tells these stories, these illustrations, it's these stories are about the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in the earth. And someone finds that treasure and sells all that they have just to own it. It's because the kingdom has come. And as you walk throughout the, all the gospels, you'll, or as you walk throughout the gospel of Mark, you'll see that Jesus heals a blind man, that Jesus raises a lame man, that Jesus raises a dead man, that Jesus calms the sea and casts out demons. And all of those things were not just Jesus doing bippity boppity boo. All of those things were pointing to a future kingdom where there would be no disease, no disaster, no demons and no death. And this thing of the kingdom was so important that the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples, the last words that he shared with them was that one day he was going to be with them, drinking from a cup with them that will be in the new kingdom where they will be right with God forever and ever and ever. All about the kingdom. And what it's saying is this, that the resurrection is proof that the best is yet to come. That the kingdom of God is here and the future for the people of God is bright. And that's why, Christians, death is not saying goodbye. Death is see you later. Now, for you you Florida Gator fans, it's see you later, alligator. (laughs) See, the resurrection power of Jesus is strength for today, but it's also hope for tomorrow. See, our world, our, our 21st century sophisticated humanistic, atheistic worldview just says that life is just living in an enclosed box. Christianity says no, life is living in a, in a suit that has windows. That there's a life to come and that life is far greater than you can imagine because something is greater that is coming. You can deal with the suffering and pain of this life. The reason why so many in our world struggle with pain and suffering and tough times and, and, and scared of death and scared of, of losing someone is because Many in our world, even people who call themselves Christians, believe that this broken world is the only world that they'll ever have. See, if this is the only body you get, and this is the only job you have, and this is the only family you have, and if this is the only life you have, and this is all there is, then yeah, I would be in despair. 
But if Jesus is who he says he is, and if he's risen from the dead, then the Bible is telling us that our future is more beautiful, wonderful, and certain than we have ever known here on earth. Do you understand this? We, most of us live in, in the here and now that there is a sweet by and by that's coming. And listen, the life that is to come is far greater than any life you can have here on earth. So think about this. The resurrection is confirmation that Jesus is who he says he is and everything he said is true. But the resurrection is also an expectation that the future for those who put their faith and trust in him is brighter than they can ever imagine. So what do we do with these things? This is why this is good news. You see why this is good news? This is incredible news. That what I'm, what I'm living for is worth living for and what I'm dying for is worth dying for. So what do I do with this news? What, what do I do with the fact that Jesus is alive? It's the third point. And that is this. The resurrection is an invitation to a greater mission. Verse 8. Most scholars believe that the end of Mark's gospel is verse 8. Now, we don't have time to get into the rest of that. I don't want you to leave here doubting your Bibles. I don't want you to leave here with a bunch of... I'm just telling you right now. The oldest manuscripts pretty much end at verse 8. We're not going to get into all that, but you can trust your Bible. You can look up and research it, but most scholars believe it ends in verse 8. And if it ends in verse 8, then the story ends pretty anticlimactically, if that's a word. They went out. They fled. They trembled. They were astonished. They said nothing to no one, and they were afraid. Well, that's exciting. I mean, you go to a tomb, you're expecting somebody to be in there, and you're supposed to embalm them. And then you see an angel, and the angel says, don't be scared. He's alive. He told you he's going to be alive. Go tell everybody that he's alive. And they leave and tell nobody. But most scholars say that Mark intentionally ends this way. One is this word astonishment is not the same word as alarm. They were in agony when they were at the tomb, but after they met the angel, they were now in awe. But Mark here, scholars say that Mark here is ending this way intentionally, and here's what he's saying. He says, you got the story, now you got to do something with it. The reality is, is this, that if Jesus really, truly has been raised from the dead, then it means that Mark's story that he has told us for these 16 chapters is true, that he is the Son of God that he is the true and perfect king, that he's the suffering servant who died on the cross for our sins. He's the triumphant warrior who rose from the dead, who is the great high priest that offers us forgiveness and reconciliation and a right relationship with God. And if you trust in him, you have a future that's bright. If that's true, if all of that's true about him, then we have to tell that to the world, right? We have to tell that to the world. If that's true, like if I told you today that I had the absolute 100% cure for cancer of any kind of cancer that you ever have in the history of cancer and the history of the world in time, and I had that cure and I knew about that cure, then the, nat- the natural, and, and it, was, it was free and it was simple, what would you say? You should tell that to everybody, right? Here's the cure. We have something greater than that. We have someone who can give us a right relationship with God. And we have to tell the world that. 
And so that's why when you read the other gospel accounts, that when Jesus does meet them in Galilee, what does he do while they're in Galilee? He sends them on mission, and that mission was to tell the world this story. And so when you get to Matthew 28, when you get to Luke 24, when you get to Acts 1-8, you see here that Jesus says, I want you to go and make disciples. The funny thing is, is if you remember Mark chapter 1, verse 17, when Jesus called Peter, James, Andrew, and John, What did he say? He said, follow me, Epilbay, and I will make you to become fishers of men. So here, Jesus, full circle, says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, and I'm going to send you, my disciples, in my resurrected power to live on mission to reach the world until I return. That's the mission. And so the resurrection of Jesus means that every follower of Jesus, this side of heaven, has, needs to, must leverage their life for this mission. And you don't have to be a professional or an elite. You just have to be a Christian. That all Christians are called into this mission. It is no longer that you have to uh, feel some sort of tingling uh, thing running down your spine. No, if you are a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are called. It's only where and how you're called. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to quit your job and enter into full-time vocational ministry. It just means that you see that your life is is an opportunity to leverage for this mission of spreading this good news to everyone everywhere. J.D. Greer put it this way. He says, whatever you're good at, do it well for the glory, to the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Everybody has an ability. Everybody has something that they're good at. And so he says, do it for the glory of God, but also do it for the strategic mission of God. You understand that God has placed you in Naples if you're from here. If you, if you just moved here, great. If you've been here a long time, great. If you're from out of town, great. But God is strategic. If you live here, in a great place. You're in Southwest Florida. It's a great place to live. I mean, it's such a strategic location. You know, the best thing about living in Naples, Florida is it's close to me and it's so great. (laughs) But you understand that God has strategically placed you here. He's strategically placed you in your job, in your school, in your gym, at your, uh, in your neighborhood, around your neighbors. And so therefore leverage all of that to how can I use where God has placed me to be on mission for him? You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to. All you have to do is say, I once was blind, but now I see. That's it. Matter of fact, the early church historian Michael Green says that 80% or more of evangelism in the early church was not done by professionals, but by ordinary Christians who explained their lives to a network of relatives and close associates and neighbors. And he says that people paid attention to the gospel Because someone they knew well, worked with, and perhaps loved spoke to them about it. Who in your life, right now, think of it, who in your life needs Jesus? Who is far from God? Who does not have a relationship with him? Who needs desperately this good news? And that is the person that God has called you to to share. We have a couple in our church, the Conerts, Brad and Alicia. They are just great, great family in our church. They love Jesus. Uh, and one of the things that is put upon Brad and Alicia's heart is to, to really reach their employees. They own a small business, have about 30 employees. And so every Monday morning, uh, Brad in his, monthly, in, his, in his weekly meetings with his staff will, will weave the Bible into his company meetings. Uh, he and his wife, Alicia, as you see here in this picture, uh, they, they have a Bible study dinner once a month in their house where any of their employees or any of their employees' friends could come, attend the dinner, ask any questions they want about Christianity. Over the past few months, 
Uh, he's invited all the company, but in the past few months, 15 of his 30 employees have attended here. Of those 15, six of them have given their life to Jesus. And of those six, three have been baptized here. Amen. Here's what Brad said. He's just an ordinary dude. Doesn't have a seminary degree. Just loves Jesus. Just loves Jesus. He has a degree in Jesus. You got a degree in Jesus? He said this. He says, the main thing is presenting the gospel in a safe space. No question is off limits or too hard to address. I might not have all the answers, but I want them to know that following Jesus isn't blind faith. It's faith in something solid and worth putting your faith in. How can he go to his employees and tell them that this is true if Jesus is still dead? He can't. But because Jesus is alive, they have something worth putting their faith in. And because Jesus is alive, you have somebody worth sharing because you're just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. See, it is the ultimate game changer. It's the good news. And so the question before you today is this. Has the resurrection of Jesus from the dead been a game changer in your life? Has it changed you? See, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is only good news if you hear it and receive it. What's the gospel? Let me tell you. The gospel is that Jesus was crucified for our sins, was buried, and God raised him from the dead so that whoever trusts in him will be made right with God forever. Would you say that with me? Jesus was crucified for our sins, was buried, and God raised him from the dead so that whoever turns from their way and trusts in him will be made right with God forever. Do you believe that? Have you trusted in that? Because the decision that everyone in this room and everyone watching online and everyone who's been here today is going to have to make, do I believe Jesus is alive or not? Because if he's alive, that makes a difference. If he's not alive, that makes a difference. And eternity is a long time to be wrong. I believe Jesus is alive and he's changed my life. Do you? Has he changed your life? You're wondering why am, why am I struggling? Why, why, why don't I have any hope? Why don't I have any joy? I feel like something's missing in my life, something's broken. It's because you need a relationship with the resurrected Jesus, that Jesus Christ entered into this broken world and entered in with broken people to fix them and make them whole again. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way he can make us right. His death was to pay for our sins and his resurrection is to prove that our sins are forgiven and that he has the power to raise the dead. But the second question is this. If you, have, if you do believe that Jesus is alive, then are you living on mission for him? See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a secret to be kept, but it's a story to be told. I'll end with this. You can go anywhere in the world and find about two things. Remember, I've been to 45 countries in eastern Kentucky. Okay, I can testify. I've been everywhere, man. I'm like Johnny Cash. I've been everywhere. Been in the remote jungles, been in the bush, been in the mountains. I've been to, I've been, I went to nowhere and turned left about 100 miles. There's two things you're going to find pretty much universally in the world. You know what those two things are I found? You're going to find a cell phone. You're going to find iPhones and a handful of Androids. But you're going to find a cell phone. You know the other thing you're going to find? is Coca-Cola. Uh, listen, you can go anywhere. 
and you'll find a cell phone and Coca-Cola. I was in northern Iraq in the middle of nowhere in a tent, in a refugee tent, and they had a cell phone and Coca-Cola. They did. Why is that? Because Coca-Cola had a strategy. Mutart Kent, who was the CEO of Coca-Cola, said this. There is nowhere, and this is talking about his strategy in Africa. He says, there's nowhere in Africa we won't go. We'll go to every town, every village, every community, and every township. We'll go everywhere. They had two methods Coca-Cola did in reaching the world for Coke. Here's what Mutart said. He says, we're going to keep Coca-Cola cold, and we're going to keep Coca-Cola close. So what their strategy was to reach Africa and the rest of the world is to take coolers. Literally, they took coolers of ice-cold Coca-Cola to every village and every town in Africa and then in other remote places in the world. And here's what they understood. They understood that the closer you get to someone's home, the closer you get to their heart. As a matter of fact, Coca-Cola said this. He says, he says we, don't, we don't care about people coming to Coca-Cola. Because we have made a choice to pay the price to go to them. Well, let me tell you something right now. We got something far better than Coca-Cola. We have Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't worry about them coming to us. Because we got to make a decision today to go to them. Will you today make that decision? Because Jesus is far better than anything else this world has to offer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God and salvation to whoever believes. And God, right now I am praying and I'm believing that there are people in this room or watching online or maybe going to listen to this podcast that desperately need a relationship with you. And God, I'm asking right now that the resurrected Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead would raise the dead hearts in this room today. That for those who do not know you as Savior, that would, God, today you would make them so miserable that they would do nothing but receive you and trust you. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you in that moment to do it right now. Maybe you want to pray a prayer like this. If you're here and you want to trust Christ, it's not some magical words, but maybe you can pray a prayer like this with me. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, but I believe you died on the cross, and I believe you rose from the dead. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins and save me and be the Lord of my life and help me to live for you. Father, I pray that those in this room who needed to pray a prayer like that, that God, through faith, that they would cry out to you, whatever that looks like in their own faith, that God, they would cry out and ask you to forgive them and save them. And Father, for those of us who are forgiven and for those of us who are saved, God, would you help us to live on mission for you, that we know that your word is true, that Christianity is real, and that our future is bright. Would we leverage all that we have here, knowing the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? They're, they're going to play a song. It's a newer song, but it's very thought-provoking. And so as you listen to the words of the song, as, as you want to sing, sing with it. But here's the deal on this song. If you sing the words of this song, it's going to mean something. It's going to come with a cost. And if you're here and God's put somebody on your heart, maybe you need to pray for them. Maybe you sit in the pew, the seat that you're in or come down to the front. If there's some 
call that God has in your life. We have pastors and staff here. We'd love to chat with you if you want to chat with us. But listen to the words of this song, and I pray that you would truly mean them. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.